It's Thursday, August 31st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Memorial Day 2020. Two New Yorkers of the same surname were visiting Central Park amid a global pandemic. Each had an interest in animals. Amy Cooper was walking her dog and Christian Cooper was watching his birds. But Amy Cooper's dog was off leash in a part of Central Park where that wasn't allowed. Christian Cooper warned her to leash the dog and told her, well, I'll read from his online account posted later that day. Me, and this is Christian Cooper on his own webpage, me, look, if you're going to do what you want, I'm going to do what I want, but you're not going to like it. He began to offer the dog treats, treats he carried with him. The dog owner freaked out and called the police. Her, what's that? Me, come here, puppy. Her, he won't come to you. Me, we'll see about that. Before adding, I pull out the dog treats I carry just for such intransigence. I don't even get the chance to toss any treats to the pooch before Karen scrambled to grab the dog. And Karen, who we know now as Amy Cooper, did call 911 and reported being threatened by an African-American man in the park. You know the rest? Here's the headline in the New York Times the next day. White woman is fired after calling police on black man in Central Park. Video of the incident touched off intense discussions about the history of black people being falsely reported to the police. Charges against Amy Cooper were considered. Christian Cooper did not participate in that consideration and charges were dropped. Amy Cooper has since left the city and the country. Christian Cooper got a book contract and hosted a National Geographic show and I... I was wrong. Why? What did I say? Well, the night the incident went viral, every news outlet ran a piece on it, making her out to be a horrible monster, and she seemed like a monster. I believe to this day it was a horrible overreaction to what was essentially a problem of her own making. She was breaking the rule on leashing dogs. But I also knew, or I thought I knew, or I knew up to that point, but didn't consider how much the world had changed. I knew how these things usually play out. There is a massive rush to judgment. There is horrible public condemnation that has a mob fervor. And eventually, as passions cool, some reporter doing what reporters were put on this earth to do tells the full story. Here's her side. Finds out that this simple interplay between the forces of good and the forces of evil might not have been so simple. So I tweeted out wrongly, I predict in three weeks, Someone will write a profile of Amy Cooper that humanizes her, and some of us will say, huh, I hadn't thought of that. She might be an actual person who did a bad thing rather than a human garbage monster. I think I mistook the national mood, but I also couldn't know of the national mood at that exact moment, because a few hours after a birder and a dog walker confronted each other in New York City, a police officer in Minneapolis knelt on a man who was trying to pass a phony $20 bill at a grocery. The date and time of my tweet was May 26, 2020, 4.57 p.m. That very night, we'd see the first full protests over the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Within a day or two, those protests would turn chaotic. Within a few more days, they would spread, and no one would care about the case of Amy Cooper. Or no reporter would care enough to dig in and do the reporting. You know what? I was wrong about that, too. Well, it wasn't in three weeks. It took over a year, but Camille Foster, reporting for the Free Press, 
put together a lengthy report that I commend you to listen to, and we'll bring you a telescoped version of that report. But he put together a report, an investigation really, that looked at Amy Cooper's background, her motivations, and her mindset in the moment. Some history of Christian Cooper and birding in Central Park as well. It was what I assume we would have seen pretty soon after May 26, 2020 in an outlet like the New York Times or the Atlantic, but they never did that story. But Camille Foster did. Up next, we'll play a shorter version of that hour and 20 minute report so that you are oriented and understand where we're coming from. And then we'll end the show with an interview with Camille Foster. That's up next. On August 3rd of 2021, a year and three months after the initial incident, Camille Foster's report, The Real Story of the Central Park Karen, dropped in the Honestly podcast feed. One of my most stubborn friends. (laughs) You just absolutely refuse to go along with the crowd. Listeners had certainly all heard about Amy Cooper, the titular Karen, but perhaps they could use a reminder about the tone of the initial coverage which Foster provided. A quintessential example of just how simple this story was being presented is found here in the Washington Post. And they describe the encounter in this way. He, meaning Christian Cooper, approached the dog owner early on Monday with a request. Could she leash up the canine as park rules required? Amy Cooper said she would be calling the police instead. End quote. That's it. And this is pretty typical of what you would find in most any national media outlet. And everyone was covering the story. And generally, when they covered it, they would place it in the context of a plethora of other, and let's call the genre, being black in public stories. And the shape of these stories should be very familiar to everyone. Black person going about their daily lives encounters some racist white person, nearly always a middle-aged woman, who calls the police on them for no justifiable reason at all. And Rolling Stone actually published an article referring to this entire situation as kind of the 21st century Jim Crow. But Foster wasn't engaging in that sort of superficial reading. First, he found a journalist who had previously reported on the tensions between birders and dog owners in Central Park in general, and on Christian Cooper's methods specifically. The journalist's name is Michael McDonald. I actually first heard about the conflict between birders and, we'll call them dog people, um, <laughs> people who have dogs, uh, Dog people. Yeah. and this, this actually goes back to early 2019. And I was writing a story about some neighbors who are very interested in urban naturalism, urban naturalists. And I was at a, a gathering of urban naturalists and, you know, one of the fun things about being a community reporter is that you get to get involved in the gossip and gossip is really the stuff of life, you know? <laughs> and so there at, toward the end of the meeting, these, these two folks are, are discussing this real problem of off leash dogs in the ramble, which is in central park. One said to another, well, I know somebody who's really figured out something to do about this. And what he does is he carries some treats you know, he asks the owner to, to leash the dog, and of course the owner doesn't. And then he pulls out the treats and calls the dog over. And, and then they put 
uh, a leash on the dog real fast, and there was some chuckling. And somebody said, is that legal? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember at the time I was just cracking up because I was like, New York City has room for everybody. I mean, you know, <laughs> who would think of, of doing this? Um, and I, I remember it was like a, like a story I told friends over drinks for a while. Like there are, there are birders in the park who will try to feed dog owners treats if they don't leash their dogs. Like, can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> Foster then dug through the archival recordings and found Christian Cooper actually speaking to his local community board about procedures and rules in Central Park for birders. It would be ideal if we could get some enforcement, particularly on Strawberry Fields, which I've been told by some dog walkers is actually a dog run. I'm like, "Um, no, not really. Uh, Also in the Ramble, there are two particular spots where there are open fields and people see them and they think, this is a place for me to play catch with my dog. And I'm like, no, this is the ramble. Dogs have to be unleashed. And he goes on to say in this very same meeting that he wants to see more law enforcement in the park, more of a police presence to enforce the rules. But I'm wondering what we get can get for enforcement. It's also important for the dogs. I was able to track down people who claimed to have had encounters with Christian Cooper in the park in the months and weeks before his encounter with Amy Cooper. And the stories that they told me were all eerily similar to the account that Amy gives, down to the detail of Christian Cooper having this bike helmet that he's holding in this intimidating way. And while none of these people were actually comfortable talking to me about this on the record, we do have a written statement from one person, a man named Jerome Lockett. Um, as he describes himself in a letter he wrote at the time, which he sent to NBC and a number of other media outlets. Um, He is a a 30-year-old African-American dog owner who had previously encountered Christian Cooper, who Christian had yelled at um, in the park, instructing him to leash his dog. And as Jerome tried to walk away from Christian, Christian pursued him. And Christian attempted to lure his dog away with dog treats, just as he had with Amy. And even further, Jerome felt threatened, and he asks him to stop. Christian won't stop, and eventually there is a physical altercation. Jerome pushes Christian to the ground, and Christian screams for someone to call the police. But the encounter pretty much ends there. Jerome walks on with his dog, and that is about the end of it. And... He ends his written statement with this quote, and I think this is, this is relevant. He says, My two fellow dog owners had similar situations with this man, but don't feel comfortable coming forward because they are white. They think they'll be seen as some Karen or whatever. All of those confrontations occurred before Amy Cooper became known as the Central Park Karen. So how should we think of that designation, of her actions? Foster spoke with Amy Cooper. And he has her take him through the interaction as she experienced it. And then he utters something that sounds to me like a threat, that he's going to do something to me I'm not going to like. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then she says that the man, who we now know is Christian Cooper, says to her, if you're going to do what you want to do, then I'm going to do what I want to do. But you're not going to like it. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what does that mean? Is that a physical attack on me? Is that to my dog? Like, what, what is he about to do? And before I could have even figured out and can process this, he has this giant, I, I don't know if it's a fanny pack slash knapsack, it's on his front, and he pulls out dog treats. And I'm like, what the heck is this guy doing? 
and he begins to call her dog. And I look up and, you know, he's holding this dog treats in one hand and a bike helmet in his other hand. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is this guy like going to like lure my dog over and try to like hit him with this bike helmet? Okay, but even so, calling the cops and emphasizing screaming, an African-American man. Why do that? It seemed like she may have amped up the urgency in her voice to possibly convey more danger than there was. Or maybe it was frustration as Foster finds and plays for the podcast audience the actual 911 call, again, as Amy Cooper experienced it. I'm sorry, your phone is breaking up really bad. I can't hear anything you're saying. It is abundantly clear that the 911 operator cannot hear what Amy is saying. Ma'am, I cannot hear anything. The phone is breaking up really bad. Immediately when the call goes through, I realize it's a bad connection. And they can't hear me, and I can't hear them. I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. So maybe Cooper was yelling because she wasn't being heard, or maybe she was play-acting. Maybe she was really fearful. Maybe she just wanted to get back at this guy who was doing things to her dog that she didn't appreciate. Maybe. But those are all legitimate maybes, not definitive indictments. I will let Foster have the last word from the Honestly podcast. We should revisit the framing that we would encounter anytime we would see this story in the media, that this was a white woman faking tears to try to get a black man hurt or potentially killed because he had the audacity to ask her to leash her dog according to the park rules. Or that this white woman was so racist that she was terrified of a gentle, Harvard-educated bird watcher because he happened to be a black man. And she, for that crime, tried to use the police to hurt him. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people who will hear all of this, all of the additional details and the complicating facts that we've gone through, and they will continue to believe that Amy Cooper is a racist, privileged white woman. But even if you believe that, I just want to point as hard as I can to the fact that this story was covered by everyone. It is among the most covered stories of of the past year. And yet, almost none of these outlets even mentioned any of the things that we've talked about here. They didn't go out and find that other side of that 911 call. None of them, despite in many instances having talked to Jerome Lockett or received his written statement, bothered to include details about another encounter between Christian Cooper and other dog owners in the park. Like these things seem pretty relevant to this broader narrative. Okay, I misled you. I said we'd let Camille have the last word there, but actually the last word will happen after the break when Camille Foster joins me.
So joining me now is the reporter that you heard reporting that piece, the one to do it, the only one to do it, the first one, and I think the only one to do it thus far. It took longer than three weeks, but he is Camille Foster. He is a partner at Freethink, the media company, head of content at the Founders Fund, and one of the three hosts of the estimable, listenable, fascinating fifth column podcast. Camille, welcome back to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. When you read, first read about the Amy Cooper incident, were your thoughts, I bet there's more to this? I was absolutely skeptical of the dominant perspective that this woman is awful and terrible and see there are irredeemable racists lurking in every park in America and narrative. Um, I think my initial thought was just looking at this 30 second clip and knowing that there had to be more context that it seemed pretty obvious that there were probably <laughs> like two people that were engaged in some less than uh, honorable behavior maybe um, but I hadn't I didn't know much more than that and most of the reporting that was happening at that point was just about the 30 second where there were these really eventually long pieces um, uncovering Amy's past in some way, shape, or form, and venerating uh, Mr. Cooper. So depending on who you were, where you were, you may have heard, one may have heard the names Amy and Christian Cooper an hour before or an hour after you heard the name George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And when we speak of the summer of 2020, that those were the George, the killing of George Floyd was the event that ter- that gave that phrase meaning. It means the something about racial unrest or the reckoning, protests or riots. And there was never the opportunity to look, to sufficiently look, or never the never the appetite to sufficiently look at the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper story. Was this gnawing at you? Were you expecting someone else to do it? And then you finally said, I guess no one else is going to do it. It has to be me. I wouldn't even say it was gnawing at me. Honestly, I think for a while I'd kind of set that aside. I mean, that 2020 was such an, an incredible year um, in, in a lot of different ways. And there were so many unprecedented things happening that I, like everyone else, was probably just reeling um, from a lot of the craziness. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I think like the summer of 2021, maybe April, May of 2021, where I was reading a story and there was this passage in the story where the author of the piece just kind of casually acknowledges that NBC had interviewed a man named Jerome Lockett uh, around the time that Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper had this uh, altercation in the park and that Mr. Lockett had had a previous altercation with Christian Cooper in the park under eerily similar circumstances. And they didn't give any additional detail, but that seemed really unto me a little bit closer at this. And as I did start to look at it, I began to uncover all kinds of interesting and curious details um, and eventually found my way to journalists who were acknowledging that, yeah, no, we'd looked at this at the time, but for different reasons, thought it was either inappropriate to cover or perhaps too, too politically charged to cover. So you did all this other research. Uh, You looked into uh, documents and minutes of meetings and talked to other journalists, but a very important part was interviewing Amy Cooper. When did that happen? How did you approach her? 
Uh, it was shortly after I, I found this piece uh, in the in NBC, they mentioned Amy's uh, then attorney and the fact that Amy was trying to sue her former employer for wrongful termination. And I just reached out and I actually tried um, to call the attorney on the phone number that was just for the firm itself. And because of COVID, the phone number was just routed to her cell phone. Yeah. It, I think it became pretty obvious to her right away that I wasn't like other journalists who were perhaps interested in nailing Amy Cooper, that I was interested in whatever complexity and nuance. Um, and I don't mind admitting that, you know, to the extent I was looking into this story, if it turned out that this was just, you know, further ammunition um, for people who had contempt for Amy Cooper and it was the sort of thing where, you know, she was likely... Um, to just have to suffer greater recriminations, I probably wouldn't have looked at this any further because it's really of interest to me. I'm not sure that a person could be made to suffer publicly more than she has. Um, Wait, you don't think, I, I question this, you don't think that there is a public service in you, uh, someone, people who know you and know how you see the world. So if even Camille Foster looks at this and finds that, yeah, this is a story that wasn't that well reported and she was painted in broad brushes, uh, broad brush strokes, but a deeper investigation truly does show that she was really at fault. You don't think in the fear and favor ideal, without fear or favor ideal of journalism, that that should be, that was something that you'd pursue? I felt like that had already been done. I mean, I, I think yeah, but it hadn't been done authoritatively or in depth that had been done in shorthand I, then. Sure. Anyway, that wasn't the story yeah, you no, found. I, I think that's, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. My, my own, my own inclination is I've got very limited time and bandwidth. Yeah. And I don't know that I would be doing anyone a great service by looking into all of the various ways that this person who everyone already hates is not just as bad as you suspect, but as worse than you can imagine. Right. Right. <laughs> like I, I'm personally not interested in that. Yeah. Do I think Hitler was bad? Sure. Yeah. Do I want to go through, you know, his his dirty laundry and find other reasons for people to hate him? That may get someone going. It doesn't really get me going. Am I? But I am interested in general in the journalistic process. Hence, why I have a media criticism podcast that I do, you know, every single week. The stories that we talk about tend to be the ones where eh, there's something obviously a little fishy here um, or some other important way that this might have been covered. So that is what what tends to be of interest to me. Yeah. How do you meet Amy? Or uh, I remember from the from the reporting that and this was where were we during the pandemic? Did you have to meet over Zoom? She was at a remove and didn't even want you didn't disclose to the audience where she was, just that she was mm -hmm. out of this country. What were the circumstances of your interview or interviews with her? We eventually had an initial call and I just kind of talked to her and introduced myself and told her that I was interested in, in learning more about these additional details. And it also helped that I read the legal filing. Um, that they had submitted, which had these details about Christian Cooper having had, you know, prior altercations. Um, it did. Um, they did have some of the 911 audio, um, which they shared with me. Um, so they gave me some things early on that helped me know where to look um, for additional material. What did you find out about Christian Cooper's prior altercations and how that informs the uh, interaction that we all saw? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is that 
it seems that Mr. Cooper had a habit of kind of engaging in a sort of vigilantism in the park. This is an unusual interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and he had done it so much, um, or at least enough, that he had at least twice in the several months before he met Amy Cooper in the park, had physical altercations with other dog owners, one of whom was a 30-year-old Black man um, named Jerome Lockett, as I mentioned before, who was mentioned in that NBC story. Yeah. And Jerome Lockett said there was someone else he had a, that he knew that he had a confrontation with, but that guy was white and didn't want to put his name on the record. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there were quite a few people who I talked to who were very reluctant to talk um, on the record in any sort of official capacity for that reason. Um, and even Jerome, who, who wrote a letter and sent it to pretty much every major news organization in New York, um, in his letter explains that he understands that some people might be reluctant to, to speak up here because of their race. And Amy Cooper was almost certainly genuinely frightened that day. Well, let's talk about that. That I, I think it comes down to that, how genuine her fright was. Is it possible? Is it likely? Mm -hmm. Where is it on the in the continuum of possible to plausible that Amy Cooper experienced all this, saw the helmet as an intimidation, saw Christian Cooper as a tall man, a muscular man, but also, and here's the possible part, a black man, and that played into it. She, it's very hard to know, but how could we so readily say, oh, the intimidation that she felt was not in part due to who she was interacting with, and he is a black man. We can't. I mean, we could speculate about that. I mean, I can ask her directly, um, and one could try to tease out of the, the interaction, what we know about the interaction, whether or not that was part of her motivation that day. But we can't know. Um, and what if it's subconscious? It could be subconscious as well. Um, but it seems to me that that's kind of neither here nor there. At the end of the day, if if Christian Cooper asks in a slightly different way, do things unfold in the way that they do? Mm -hmm. um, if he's if he's not intending to intimidate, does she actually get frightened when she says, "Please lease your dog"? And you know, at the beginning of the video, if you actually watch the the footage that is available, and this is footage that Christian Cooper shot himself. So it's not totally shocking that he's kind of on his best behavior throughout it. Um, you see Amy Cooper hunched over her dog. The leash is in her hand. The dog isn't running wild. So he's gotten the outcome he wants. Um, but this starts to turn because she realizes he's video recording her and she tries to get him to stop. And it even, I mean, so here are some complicating details. Um, she approaches him at that point. She's not walking away from him. She's approaching him and saying, sir, please stop. Please stop recording. Um, and he says, you know, don't come close to me, which again, sort of strange to say, don't come close to me when moments ago you were calling the animal over to you um, by your own admission. Really, race doesn't enter into the picture until Amy gets on the phone with the 911 operator and provides that description. Um, and I suppose at the moment he says, to Christian, if you don't stop, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them an African-American man is threatening me and my dog. And he says, please call the police, tell them whatever you like in response, which is not exactly the response you would expect from someone who's terrified that they might be murdered by law enforcement. So Christian Cooper's sister, Melody, wrote mm -hmm. an op-ed in the New York Times a week after the encounter, and I'll read you some of it. 
With my brother, I got to see a black man survive what could have become a deadly situation. That was a relief and a cause for celebration for millions of people. But as I replayed the video several times, I felt more and more uneasy and angry until an overwhelming fear swept over me. My mind conjured up rapid images of police officers arriving and shooting first or throwing Chris down and then beating and choking him. My brother. When I posted the video on Twitter, I didn't know yet about George Floyd, who's killing last Monday by a police officer and prompted protests across the country, but I knew about Emmett Till. I know it's an op-ed, wow. and these, I'll take it, on faith that these were indeed the thoughts going through her head. To post this, to run this, a week after we're all horrified by what did happen to George Floyd, I don't, I don't even know what to do about it. I remember back then and just how it, it would seem impossible to have a rebuttal, but I do remember reading it and being exasperated and saying, okay, those, those might've been the thoughts that you had, but the wildest, least tethered to reality thoughts maybe should not be the content of a well-read op-ed in the most, supposedly the most credible news organization in America. I don't know. Your thoughts, Camille. I, I would concur with that completely. And I, I do think, however, that that uh, op-ed was totally a reflection of that season. Um, we were in a moment where a manner of kind of hysterical overstatement about the persistent threat to Black people posed by law enforcement um, was top of mind for everyone. Um, I was supposed to believe um, that I needed to tell my children how to interact with law enforcement for fear that they might be murdered um, at any moment by someone who interacts with them at a traffic stop or who sees them playing um, with a toy gun at a park. Um, and I think that the, the fact that these fears have completely outpaced uh, any sort of substantive critical analysis of the available data, we ought to think about the other, the other places where this sort of uh, mass hysteria as I think the appropriate phrase, uh, might actually crop up and be potentially dangerous. And of course, specifically then, to also think about the other places where race might be dividing us and needlessly obscuring the truth about important issues that we all want to get to the bottom of. I am I have long been an advocate for criminal justice reform. Um, it is still the case that in plenty of places across America, law enforcement are involved in a police-involved shooting, that the same department that... Uh, employs the police officer who did the shooting might actually be responsible for investigating the shooting. Like there is an obvious yeah. problem there, but we're not talking about those issues and we are content to, to, to sort of busy ourselves obsessing over, um, you know, po these politically charged um, distractions uh, about race. And I think that that is generally disastrous and harmful um, and is obviously a, a part of what happened with uh, Christian and Amy Cooper's situation um, to, to Christian Cooper's profound benefit um, and his sister's in some respects and Amy Cooper's profound detriment. Um, and again, that, that detriment, it is, it is ongoing. Uh, she continues to have trouble finding and maintaining employment. She continues to be notorious um, anytime there's uh, a new news cycle in which her name is in the press again, people find out who she is, um, wherever she is in the world, and there are consequences. I mean, imagine living with that, having your life completely upended by a 30-second clip out of context and having a public and a media that is completely disinterested in 
in getting a full, complete, honest understanding of what took place that day. And I think if you have that, it's hard to view Amy Cooper as a monster. And in, in the same respect, I think it's hard to view Christian Cooper as some sort of uh, irredeemable monster. Um, I think, you know, there's, is there a bit of opportunism there? Yeah, obviously. Um, is, is he afraid to perhaps admit certain things? Maybe, or maybe he just doesn't really see his uh, his role in this as particularly pernicious. Has Amy Cooper asked for forgiveness, and in what form? Um, I don't know that she really thinks she needs to be forgiven at this point. Um, she did um, apologize, and my sense is, uh, having talked to her, that she did it because she wanted all of this to go away. Um but not so much that she did it because she thought she had done something wrong in that moment. Um, what she knew is that everything in her life was changing. Uh, I mean, this is a woman who went into hiding almost immediately when all of this happened, who was inundated with a deluge of death threats, some of them you know, sexually charged. Um, her life was completely transformed overnight. She wanted this to go away, and people told her what to do in order to make it go away. Uh, I think, in general, she... Um, had a, a string of people, including her her legal representatives at the time, who gave her really bad advice and perhaps didn't act in her interest. Uh, and that's unfortunate for her um, because at the time, I mean, even I think the prosecutors in New York um, were looking to collect political scalp. I mean, for more than a year, they badgered her uh, with potential criminal charges and kept suggesting that they were going to put her in jail for a year. <laughs> like it's horrendous to already have your life destroyed but to also be facing, you know, this criminal prosecution. That's a pretty incredible circumstance that I think most regular people have a very difficult time uh trying to imagine themselves enduring. Yeah, I was wrong about that as well as I will get into tomorrow. But today, Camille Foster is a partner at FreeThink, head of content at the Founders Fund. He's one of the hosts of The Fifth Column, and his reporting on this can be found under the Free Press banner, their podcast, Honestly, The Real Story of the Central Park Karen is the name of that. Camille, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The Senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>